0: This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by Enerex, making it easier to buy and
1: sell energy in competitive markets. We've built so much renewable, so much non-dispatchable. It doesn't matter that it's renewable. It could be non-renewable. The key thing isn't the renewability of it or the sustainability of it. The key thing is the dispatchability of it. Can I turn it on and off? And how hard is it to turn on and off if I can?
0: Welcome to the Power Connect podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis, episode number 15 of the program happening today. On a Thursday, we're that much closer to the weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, glad to have you guys on board. And we continue with our Understanding Competitive Market Series with CEO Nate Richards. Part two goes down today where we discuss, are the markets working with the way the grid has been taxed these last few weeks? And of course, it doesn't look like it's going to let up anytime soon. So are the markets doing what they're supposed to be doing? We'll also get into a little bit about dispatchable versus non-dispatchable and the role that commercial buyers play. In the retail market, so we'll get to that here in just a second. But as always, a few housekeeping items. Number one, make sure you are following, subscribed, whatever word you want to use, to the Power Connect podcast. And of course, the best way to do that is to either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and of course Google as well. And you can also follow us on the website as well, the PowerConnect.net. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five star rating. It helps with the algorithm. And as you already know, and so far with what we've got, feedback wise. We think we do a pretty good job, and a lot of you agree with that as well. We've got some great shows coming up on the horizon. Carol Douglas and Peter Fikowski, authors of the book Climate Restoration. We've also got Joe Britton, who is the executive director of the Zero Emissions Transportation Association, great stuff from him on what they're doing in the EV market, both from a state, more so a federal level, Uh, great stuff from Joe there, and Sean Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Amperon coming up, and so uh, just a slate of good guests that we've got coming up. You do not want to miss that. So speaking of slate of good guests, let's continue on part two of the Understanding Competitive Market Series with CEO of Interax, and as one person put on LinkedIn, a legend in the space. Their words, not mine, ladies and gentlemen, but I, like I said, I think we do a pretty good job when we put these things together. Again, what the role of the broker is, Are the markets behaving the way they're supposed to right now, given the extreme weather that's going on? Plus, we get into dispatchable versus non-dispatchable and the role that plays in the markets and the grid as well. So, great stuff. If you thought episode one was good, and a lot of folks did, episode two, we continue with the information and the tremendous insight. Here is CEO of NREX, Mr. Nate
1: Richards. The renewables show up. Generally speaking, the Texas grid doesn't have problem
0: Do you now, buy the whole idea that it's renewables bailing out the grid, or is it renewables working with dispatchable <laughs> energy so, to or dispatchable uh, generation?
1: I'm really not the right guy to take an authoritative opinion on this, but I will I'll regurgitate some information that I believe to be true. So I want to be careful that I don't overstate my authority here sure, 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 as, sure. An, as an expert. I'll say I'm an insider, maybe not an expert. Okay, um, but it has to do with the mix, the overall mix of dispatchable and non-dispatchable energy sources, okay? Um, and and uh, when something's not dispatchable, it can show up just as, you know, pleasantly as it can go away suddenly. You know, the wind could just sort of just die down unexpectedly. yeah. And we don't really always know why or have a whole lot of warning. You've got, till the next tick of the clock, prices are going to move. And that creates other... Physical level problems have to do with frequency regulation because, you know, the grid doesn't like a sudden change of supply or demand in any local place. Think of the grid as like a giant spring and sort of, you ever like had a weight on the bottom of the spring in the old physics class, you know, it, initially you're holding it. It's sort of just like the weight and your hand are kind of not moving and the spring is just sort of there. Then you start moving your hand up and down. The well, weight doesn't move instantly, right? it eventually it starts to catch up okay now it's sort of moving in sort of lockstep with your hand up and down so the grid is kind of like that you you put energy into one end it doesn't just sort of like instantly show up in the end that frequency that moving up and down that's the energy i'm putting into the system and the weight at the bottom is sort of like the load and you want them to kind of be in harmony if i suddenly move one or the other right? The system sort of gets into disharmony pretty quickly. And that can be dangerous for things like substations and transformers and that are sensitive to changes in the frequency. Uh, It literally is a wave, just like that spring is a wave. It's the frequency at which that wave um, oscillates. So that frequency regulation um, is the physical sort of piece of the grid that can be a challenge with lots of renewables that are unpredictable it's just hard to keep it in balance. So we've built so much renewable, so much non-dispatchable. It doesn't matter that it's renewable. Right. It, it could be non-renewable. The key thing isn't the renewability of it or the sustainability of it. The key thing is the dispatchability of it. Can I turn it on and off? And how hard is it to turn on and off if I can? And so there's a spectrum of different types of yeah. supply sources that are I can't impossible to turn on and off to very easy to turn on and off. The rough allocation percentage-wise that we have today is growing in non-dispatchable resources, which, if we had a ton of storage or a massive battery, then all of a sudden maybe we have less of a problem because the battery works as like a store, a capacitor. It's dispatchable, right? Yeah, exactly. The battery is dispatchable, but our like our best utility-scale batteries are dispatchable for two hours max. Yeah, right. And you can dispatch them once maybe in some with some technologies twice a day okay that's that's utility scale battery technology best in the world that's where we're at two hours twice a day <laughs> best there is okay at a high volume there are other like pumped hydro where you, you know you, you consume power to pump water uphill then you let it fall back through a effectively a turbine turns a generator I mean, it's gravity-based batteries So, you know, water uphill has potential energy. When it runs downhill, you capture that energy and turn it back to electricity. They're very inefficient. So the net cost to pump it uphill versus what you get back out of it is, is hugely inefficient, but you can run it for a longer period of time. So for efficient batteries that charge and discharge pretty close, that don't lose a lot, we have a very, you know, the technology is just not there to sustain more than a two. What if the wind doesn't blow for way longer than two hours? Now what? Now you need more than a battery. So we're a ways from it. That's why a non-dispatchable energy sources and batteries are like a natural pairing. Because it makes the technology so much more schedulable now. So now you can capture the energy when it's there and then keep it until you really need it. And so you're kind of giving it some dispatchability by bringing batteries into the mix. And so I think that's really where we are at Frontier at Wise and, and Renewables. I think we're, we're, we're well off the kind of regulated, deregulated, but you can see here's Texas, we're at ERCOT. Uh, this is the most competitive market there is. One note about that, in, in the ERCOT market, the old monopoly is no longer allowed to participate in the retail market. So here in Houston is CenterPoint. CenterPoint used to have what's called an affiliate REP Retail Energy Provider, which was uh, was Reliant, okay, and they used to be the same company. And Reliant was the form the rep formerly affiliated with the utility CenterPoint. Utility is the is the monopoly right. entity. Um, and uh, I worked there actually in 1999 when they were the same company, prior to ERCOT deregulation for for the first stage of the opening of the of the consumer choice market the competitive market in in texas they said okay the monopolies that exist you can continue to sell because you know the competitive offers haven't they don't come in overnight but you can't change your price for years or you can only change it once a year for however many years okay meanwhile everyone else can come and undercut you that will allow you to not overuse your monopoly power to sort of undercut all the market keep all the competitors out until you have market power again, and then sort of abuse that market power. That was the decision that was made by the market designers of ERCOT, and that eventually they were completely phased out. And they said, okay, if you're going to participate in the retail market, you cannot be owned by the utility. You have to fully spin that out. And they, and Reliant became its own company. It no uh, was no longer part of, again, what is today now called Centerpoint, when I worked there, it was called Houston Industries, uh, again, in 1999. One thing we right. really
0: haven't touched on yet is just from the business and commercial side of things and how they go about buying power, Yeah, right? And so yeah. what are kind of some of the market fundamentals and or how does that typically work? Because let's call it what it is. They're using a hellacious amount more power than yeah. in most cases, I would imagine, than you and me.
1: Yeah, if you look at the total consumption, uh, what we call commercial and an industrial, C&I is sort of the uh industry term cni uh so if you hear me use that term i'm talking about business not i'm talking about all non-residential so cni load which is total consumption as a share of the pie is about three quarters of the load let me say this of competitively served load okay. so there's a higher switching rate virtually every business that's nationally okay so let me let me give two qualifiers to that statistic one is it's nationally Okay, and two is competitively served load by served by a non-utility supplier, okay? So if you look at the federal data as best we have, they only publish it once a year for the whole nationwide market, that'd be what, you, what you're looking at. You asked the question, which is how do they participate in the market as it is different from the residential consumer. On the one hand, they participate in the same retail market. They just buy different products and services kind of in the same way that, remember I was saying it's like an insurance product. Right. Effectively, retail energy is allowing, is paying someone else to take this volatility risk, price, the fact that the price is moving right, all the time. And so just give me a less volatile price, maybe a non-volatile price. And so businesses buy different products than residential consumers do. Businesses typically buy a product that's based on actually how they use energy. Do they use more on the weekends? less during the week, more at night, less at night. So you could think of this as like and in the insurance world, it would be a fully underwritten price. If you ever go get life insurance, you can fill out the three question questionnaire and they'll give you a, okay, your, your quote for life insurance is whatever, X million dollars of policy. You want to get a you know, a 30 year term. Okay. You get sort of a soft number. Then you go and you got to go see a doctor, get your actual health check, go go, gather up all your records well we see you had sort of a heart attack and you're kind of a little overweight and you know whatever you know you have this running in your family and so forth and so then you get the real price that's the fully underwritten that's I took your actual risk information and priced the risk statistically speaking what's it going to cost me to serve you up this benefit and then I put some profit on top and that's my actual quote you can go back and say, well, I want, to, I want that first price. It looked a lot better when I said, you know, I'm under 65 and I'm a non-smoker. You know, like, okay, well, that's great. But, you know, you might have some other major health risks that didn't show up on the initial thing. So residential energy, typically speaking, is bought sight unseen. You're buying one residence worth of energy. Business energy is bought by looking at your historical usage of energy, typically your last 12 months plotting that against what they expect prices to be going forward. And they calculate some number that they think it's statistically going to cost them to serve you the energy that you're going to use. They add a profit to it, cost of doing business and profit, and they quote it back to you in a rate structure. It's a more involved quotation process. And for that reason, and the products are more nuanced, okay, there's there's a lot more terms to them. Just like if you were to buy business, you know, cyber liability insurance, you don't buy that as mom and pop. Right. That insurance product's not even available, right? Maybe you buy LifeLock or something, right? For, for $10 a month, you know, I'm gonna buy cyber liability as a software company. You know, I'm spending dozens of thousands of dollars per year Uh, protecting my customers from like, what if I got hacked or something like that? I have to have an audit, right? I've got all these sort of things that an individual doesn't have that kind of risk. Okay, it's kind of the same thing in energy. And so for this reason, the reason the products are, are more complicated and there's a longer kind of, let's say underwriting or quotation process is that more than four out of five businesses buy through a broker. So they buy, they have a third party who kind of fills the role of both outsourced purchasing agent as well as market expert. Now, not all brokers are equal. Some of them may more, have more expertise and some have less. Some may work more as a sales rep for the supplier and less as a buying rep for the consumer. And the way that they get paid typically is by the supplier as a commission uh, that's built into your rate structure typically denominated in the same units that your energy bill is. So if it's gas or power, or what what have you. And that their commission is sort of built into your retail price. Very much like the insurance world. The only difference is in the insurance world, your broker is getting a percent of your premium, right? You're still paying the broker's fee in your insurance premium. Uh, the only difference there is that the, the commissions tend to be more regulated. There may be some sort of disclosure rule. Disclosure rule. On my 401k plan, I get a a letter at the end of the year that says your 401k guy made whatever $2,500 or whatever the number is, uh, off of your plan last year. It's a required disclosure once a year, you know, front end, back end, it doesn't matter. They have to say, Hey, here's how much I got paid and you know what service you got and you can kind of weigh that. Okay. That's not necessarily a requirement in, in most of the energy market world. So recapping businesses, products are more complex There's a much broader range of different product structures and levels of risk. Somewhere I'm going to go buy a health insurance policy. I could buy zero deductible. I could buy a low deductible. I could buy a high deductible. I could get pharmacy. I could no get pharmacy. So there's all these different configurations in the business plan that you don't necessarily have in the residential space. Second, most purchases are done through a third party called a broker. Broker, aggregator, agent. Consultant; these are all kind of words for that third party. So is
0: that broker is he, buy- but he's not buying it from the wholesale market, though, right?
1: Uh, okay, so it's kind of like the insurance broker analogy again, which is your insurance broker isn't a party to the contract on your insurance. They're not providing you the insurance; they're helping you buy the insurance. That right. You need.
0: So he's going to find the best retail product for you, essentially.
1: Exactly, and and kind of like uh, there's a similar analogy, kind of in the residential versus. Commercial space for insurance also. Like everyone knows the Allstate agent. They only sell Allstate insurance, right?
0: Yeah, brokers can buy. They they, they can shop from everywhere. So there there.
1: are some types of brokers that only sell for one logo. They're really more of an outsourced sales agent. The Allstate guy is there. to He works for Allstate. He doesn't work for you. I mean, they'd like like you to say that they want you to feel like they work for you. But ultimately, their job is to produce revenue for Allstate. Versus uh, some insurance are brokers where they work for all sorts of different insurance carriers and they price you out to different ones and say, hey, here's what Aetna said, here's what Humana said, here's what Pacific Air said, etc. So, same thing in energy. Most brokers are that second type where they work for multiple different suppliers or they have the ability to price with, let's say not work for, but they have the ability to price with multiple suppliers and they will typically price you out to multiple suppliers. And that's, that's their deal is they're helping you, number one, understand the differences in those products. Because just like insurance, it's not always apples to apples, right? This one may have a little more risk, even though the price is lower. That one may have less risk, but our price is higher. Well, there's not a right or wrong there. It's a question of how much risk do you want to take?
0: Now, I know if you're going to be a wholesale broker, you need a license. Whereas right? versus if, if I'm a retail broker, do I necessarily need one or I'm just...
1: Depends on the state. Okay. So, so similar to insurance law, which is regulated by the state, uh, energy law is sort of regulated by the state in this regard. Uh, and it ranges from New York, where brokers don't even really exist on paper. There's no registration. There's no list of brokers. There's no designation. There's no license. There's no no nothing. Uh, they're just a guy or a gal <laughs> that is selling you something that has you know, some way of getting paid for that transaction, for consummating that transaction, uh, to... I'll say Pennsylvania, not that they're an an onerous market, but they require an actual bond to be posted. You have to submit a a license uh, application to the Pennsylvania PUC. You have to, in that application, reference what energy knowledge you you bring uh, to the market. And there's a more rigorous process. It might take several months. Like I said, you have to post a bond. You have to. There might be an annual filing component where you have to say, I, I did this many transactions or this much volume or, you know, some sort of disclosure or filing requirement there. And then maybe in the middle would be ERCOT, Texas, where you just have to register and say, hey, I'm a broker. I'm getting paid to do energy deals. And that's it.
0: What, what, I thought there was like a Series 7 or Series not the, 3. Not, not in the retail market. Not right? the retail. That's yeah, Okay, yeah. that's a wholesale side of things.
1: These are not considered, uh, there's no fiduciary responsibility here okay. where the broker's required to have your best interest. Now, my, my company, NRX, we make, we're kind of the leading platform for brokers software-wise. So we make software for brokers and suppliers that help them make it easier to buy and sell energy in competitive markets. Believe it or not, the, the commercial space is still extremely manual. It's still an email and spreadsheet type of business where to get a quote, you've got to send, you know, I quote with 12 suppliers, you have send 12 emails with 12 Even spreadsheets, in you know? Yeah. So we're, we're trying to basically build a, an environment where you can transact digitally. One of the major problems for consumers is in a volatile market, like we're in today where the prices are moving like crazy. You know, the LNG plant had a fire, and the gas market moved 12% in one day, down. Well, it's been going up like crazy and went yeah. down like crazy. So it's just all over the place. And the challenge is if I get a quote in the morning, it may, it may be no good in the afternoon. Right. And when I've got to transact via email and spreadsheet and email and, and all this stuff, paper, it makes it harder for me to get a deal done, both for the broker, for the supplier, and for the consumer. Hey, I like that $0.08 cent quote you gave me in the morning. No, I'm sorry, it's $0.10 cents now. It moved 20% uh, in the afternoon. Sorry, i got to re-quote you. No consumer likes that experience. And they also don't, guess what, if it goes the other way, uh, it may still be $0.10 because, you know, somebody may just get a big healthy commission because they've already got a contract at $0.10 and the market moved down to 8 So I'm not saying that that's what's definitely happening. What I'm saying is it's not good for the end consumer either to have this inability to sort of time the market and efficiently execute transactions. And so that's kind of what we're trying to solve for is, help kind of number one institutionalize the broker so that brokers that do add value that are more of the energy advisor to the to the business consumer are having a systematic way to go to market get customers price present proposals that help apples to apples comparisons uh take place or really help them understand apples to oranges why are these prices so different well this one includes that that one doesn't include it and really um help brokers do better by their customers and have a more efficient process that's what we're, we're trying to do and the same thing on the supplier side to help them transact less manually with an end consumer or or through a broker which as i already mentioned is 82 percent of commercial load transacted through through a broker and so that's kind of what we do and we see really what's happening now is that the brokers are really wanting to bring a broader set of solutions to customers customers you know, two or three years ago, maybe they just wanted to like just get me the best price for my energy. And I'll see you again in, in one or two years when my contract renews. Uh, increasingly, they're saying, hey, are we green? Uh, I just had a management meeting. I just had a shareholder meeting. I got asked this question. I, we've never talked about it. Now, what What are we, where do we buy our energy from? And help me with carbon story. And could, could we lower our bill? I know that we do that on the price side, but what is there? Can we get more efficient? Can you help me with that? And so... Customers are asking for a more holistic solution. And because of competitive markets, there's a whole ecosystem of suppliers and vendors and solution providers that can come in because they don't have to go through the monopoly. Yeah. You don't have to wait for a, a monopoly to come and say, you know, we're gonna decide to roll out LED lighting promotions in 2027, whatever. <laughs> That's the typical monopoly they're, they're 20 years behind. And they're driven by, until, that, until I get a guaranteed rate of return, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, Because my investors want to clip an 8% coupon every year, and I need to make that dividend payment with zero to little risk. And the way I do that is by not coloring outside the lines and taking on excess risk. And, and, and trying out these new vangled things. I just want to kind of stick to my knitting, keep doing what I did last year. Maybe I'll do 1% different. And, and that's, the, that's the monopoly, kind of slow-moving, very risk-off kind of mindset. Uh, whereas you can see now in the, in the consumer end of the world, the retailing, we want new products. We want uh, demand response, meaning the ability to kind of like, hey, if it's really hot and power prices are really high, what if I stopped consuming? Isn't that kind of like a little micro generator coming on? line at the same time. In other words, if I need dispatchable supply, couldn't I also get dispatchable load or dispatchable demand? We call that DR for demand response. It's just as good as a power plant, right? If I need to balance the market, I can either bring up supply or bring down demand, right? Usually it's not the other way around. (laughs) Let me ask you this. What has...
0: From the business side of things, I know just from being in this space now the last couple of years, being in the renewable space the last couple of years, a lot of businesses have gone towards microgrids or started incorporating microgrids or considering microgrids. Mm-hmm. Has that been a disruptor to the market when it comes to power generation? Where have microgrids fallen in your estimation I, or just I in don't, your experience? I don't, think,
1: I don't think they're prevalent enough okay. really today. I think they're they continue to be more of a niche application okay. that wouldn't really have maybe mass appeal. Demand response, what I was just talking about, I think is something that is a proven and known technology. Think about your thermostat at home, right? A lot of people have smart thermostats. They have a Nest or an Ecobee or something like that. Um, We can kind of all connect with the idea that, imagine that that, uh, you could connect your thermostat to your energy contract and say, hey, if my contract is nights and weekends, set my power, you know, if it's, you know, if my nights and weekends contract kicks on at eight o'clock, don't drop me to 68 until it's eight o'clock until then i'll be 74. i can get comfortable at 74. right and um, i'm probably not even in the house most of the time anyway uh, but i don't want to come home to a hot house so you can imagine how your devices could almost interact with your energy contract if there was this shared data interface so imagine that at a business scale imagine you're running a plant I mean, the classic example is someone who uh Gets catalytic converters from all legal sources. I'm sure, and melts them to take the platinum that's residual in that catalyst out. Okay, those typically are done in electric powered furnaces. They consume like a small town's worth of electricity. Okay, what if they said, "Hey, power price is really high right now. I'll turn off my smelter. I'll make aluminum. I mean, I'll make platinum tomorrow." Right? If the power is worth so much, at some point it might be worth waiting to make the platinum. Right? We'll melt it another day. They have that choice. Right. They can now say, no, it's worth it to me. I'm going to keep consuming or wow, there's so much incentive. I'll wait. I'll run it at night. I'll run a late night shift. I'll run. I'll pay the labor uh, cost to run a night shift yeah. rather than pay the power cost to melt it during the day. So the market lets businesses and any consumer, residentials too, right? Just like my story about using my gritty contract to reduce my power bill. Uh, again, I wouldn't recommend it for grandma, but for, as an industry insider, it worked well for me. It gives consumers that choice, and they actually have a profit motive or a price signal in economics terms to change their behavior. Where if it's just like all one price, there's no signal. Maybe there's, a again, an ideological motivator, but there's no price motivator. So. You know, I don't think that microgrids are going to be like, uh, they're a piece of the puzzle, but maybe that's maybe the most relevant point I can make about microgrids. I also, full disclosure, I'm not a microgrid expert. So I'm not just poo-pooing it because I'm not an expert. It is a niche sort of area of the industry. For people that can use them, you know, they're very effective. What I would say is that in general, energy is not a one-size-fits-all market. It may have been once upon a time, just like once upon a time, one company owning all the phone lines was a great solution. And then we said, wow, there are different needs. In fact, I have to pay this for long distance. At some point, someone said, the government said, you know, it's no longer in the consumer's best interest to have telephones, connectivity, communications controlled by one company. In fact, it's still important that uh, everyone has a right to a phone line to their house, We'll leave that in the monopoly. and But the different products and services, someone needs to be able to call Mexico. Maybe there's a specialty long-distance carrier that will make special rates just to Mexico. Someone else only needs to call Kansas. Maybe there's a specialty uh, local sort of company that can provide a product that's Kansas calls only for far less than a national, all-encompassing monopoly-type long-distance approach, which is we just take one big cost and peanut butter spread it over everybody. So... In, in addition, what we got out of that telecom deregulation, now if you didn't notice, I've switched to speaking about uh, a different industry because this really has direct parallels. And that is, look at the innovation we've gotten as a result, as a ripple effect of that one thing, which is, hey, it doesn't seem like consumers' best interest is being served by one company owning all telecommunications resources. Let's break it up and uh, let's split up the services. In those days, long distance was the only kind of Novelty on top of the dial tone itself. But what happened soon after that? Payment cards, prepaid phones, oh, long distance. Then it was like dialing, uh, sending cash via phone cards. He's selling 800 number toll-free services. Then there was data over phone lines. Oh, and we had dial-up modems. Now we have internet connectivity. Now we have content. Now what is AT&T? AT&T. It's mobile phones, wireless, fiber to the home. So they still own the, the copper, the old copper phone lines. But increasingly, they're a media. They own Time Warner. I mean, right? They're, they're content. They're the network and the content in one company. They're a media giant. You know, it's transformed telecommunications. We have wireless. We have Internet. We have we have, you know, the watches on our wrists, right? The laptops, the data connectivity, the fact that I can stick a modem built by one company and go around the country, go around the world today, not have to think about who the local phone company is. I just buy services because there's a product there that has been innovative to sort of think about me as that unique consumer. And this is really what's happening in energy. Right? This is why there's microgrids is even a thing, not because the monopoly said we're going to put microgrids in certain types of businesses, and that's worth it to us, and we're going to get a guaranteed rate of return for that. It's because there's a business that needs it and a market that allows suppliers to meet that need, it allows innovators to come in and say, hey, there's a problem, it's worth it to me to solve it and I can make money. There's a profit incentive for me. That is what brings innovation, and that is if there was one reason to think about markets, that is the reason. I do believe that there are also savings, that markets are more efficient, even though, of course, there's the hazard, like grandma buying the lemon. You know, in any market, some consumer is going to there's going to be some bad actors, somebody's going to get a bad deal. And those people need to get punished and thrown out and put on the news and shamed and get them out of the market. needs to happen whether they're selling lemons, cars or lemons, energy contracts. Right? They need to get out of the market and stop taking advantage of consumers without, without question. And do you have that risk in a monopoly? You, you don't. So it feels like warm and fuzzy. Well, if we're in the monopoly, at least grandma's not getting a lemon energy contract. But think about the innovation. Go back to the AT&T model, right? You want to still be, you know, spin dialing, uh, you know, and paying long distance. I remember we could barely call my grandparents very often because it cost so much to call New York. From my, my local Texas mom or my single mom, it was like, hey. Pointing at the watch, get off phone, with, get off with Nana because the bills. Bill. You just hit 20 minutes, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is what the opportunity we have. We're on the eve. I was so exciting and energy right now, and and for brokers, we really see them almost like what's happened to the travel agent of the 90s. And you look at the travel agent of today. In the 90s, the travel agent booked your airfare and they made 10% of the airfare. Today, what does a travel agent do? They plan the whole vacation. Well, they have to, right?
0: The, the airfare. Like you know Expedia or Priceline okay, or, it's or got,
1: now not, exact, not an exact comparison to energy because the pro, it's easy to understand what an airline seat is, but not easy to understand what an energy contract is. So that's why it's not an exact change. But if you look at how the service model has evolved, it's become an all-encompassing service. It's not just the commodity and I'll book it for you. It's now become, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm going to turn key, right? I'll be an energy advisor, not a, not a price getter. And we see that transition coming into the, the broker world and coming into the, the retailer world, which is increasingly retail suppliers are, gonna, are already bringing demand response. They're bringing efficiency. They're bringing green products. They're bringing carbon-free products. They're uh, doing renewable energy projects, capital projects, financing them through the supply bill, all kinds of creative things that would never come through the monopoly. Never. Maybe in 100 years right so it's it's competitive markets that are going to bring in this future world which is the last thing i'll say about microgrids is energy isn't everything it's an and problem this tyranny of the ore like we have to have coal or wind we can't have both you know it's a false dichotomy we need all forms of energy that can compete effectively in the market not pick winners we need it all we need batteries yes 100 percent we need batteries so This is really where we're going, and and it's my passionate belief that markets are the most efficient, if not not the only way, to really get there.
0: Thank you so much for that, Mr. Nate Richards. You can catch parts one and two over at the website, thepowerconnect.net, and of course, as always, over at Apple and Spotify. Give us a follow there, leave us a five-star rating. You know the drill. All right, part three is going to go down this weekend, and don't forget news you can use. Again, great feedback there, four or five, sometimes six. Stories from around the energy world. We get you in and out in 10 minutes. That's the key takeaway. Again, it's like an espresso shot for your brain, boys and girls, full of energy news. So, uh, And again, if you've got a story that you want, if you want us to talk about your company, whatever it is, fred at thepowerconnect.net. Follow us on LinkedIn as well, Fred Davis and the Power Connect. You will be glad that you did. As always, thanks to everybody for tuning in. The audience, the guests, you name it, without you doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Power Connect Podcast. Connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time.
1: Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all in the hand. Only thing we have to